0: Welcome to episode 33 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today I'm talking about making dolls with Jess Brown. Jess has been making dolls for 16 years. She's carefully developed a line of signature handmade rag dolls. Each doll is cut to order in her Northern California studio and always made using the finest materials. Jess also collaborates with several designers, creating limited-edition dolls for each season. Although originally created for children, the dolls have a simple sophistication that has moved them into the women and lifestyle markets as well. As a natural progression, Jess launched Jess Brown Pieces in 2012, a collection of carefully edited, timeless clothing for women that are inspired by vintage flea market finds that Jess has collected throughout the years and worn threadbare. The Ragdolls and Women's Collection are available in select shops worldwide. Jess lives in Petaluma, California with her children, Stella and Tiger, and her husband, Arayo. Jess Brown, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk Mm -hmm. to you. And I have to mention um, that I have a daughter named Stella, too.
1: Oh, great.
0: I love that name. I do, too. And Tiger is kind of an
1: awesome boy's name. How did you choose Uh that? well it 's actually believe it or not it 's a family name um, my great aunt Bella Tiger um, passed away sadly two weeks before Tiger was born um, and it just needed to be his name i mean we're, our, our family 's Jewish, and so tradition is that you would name with the first letter of the most recently deceased relative and we just thought, why not go for it and just name him Tiger, just that is after her.
0: Yeah, that's so, that's so, so cool. We're Jewish as well. And yeah. my Stella is named for my grandfather, Sydney. So oh, yeah, okay. same tradition. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's so great though. That's what he lucked out. <laughs> he did. He <laughs> um, did. Um, all right. So let's go way back and um, talk a little bit about your sort of growing up. Tell me how you learned to sew. Did you grow up in a creative household?
1: I did not um, grow up in a creative household, believe it or not. I, um, I grew up, my mom was a teacher and my father was very much involved in the fashion and music industries. And, and so I was around a lot of, um, I was around a lot of creativity that way, but he was in the marketing and licensing side of it. So it was not a real creative hands-on household that way. Um, but when I met my husband, Arayo, I was 18, and he did grow up in a real hands-on, kind of all things handmade household, and he taught me to sew when I was 18, so I learned a lot kind of later. Wow. That's trying. so...
0: I don't know anybody who learned to sew from their husband. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. So, so did you um, study art or something like that in college?
1: No, I actually I went um in for teaching. Um I was really really interested in early childhood education and um got two degrees in in ECE and kind of spent um near 11 years just right, as soon as I could I was teaching and I was really involved in handmade materials for the classroom and, um, really focused on children, you know, using natural materials as toys, moving away from plastic. And it was at a time before really Waldorf had hit in a big way. Um, so it was harder to find classrooms like that, um, back then. So yeah, my, my love was kind of about providing children, this just really very tactile, tangible, you know, very handmade experience within a classroom. And that's where I started creating a lot.
0: Okay. So then I was a teacher as well before I started. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, so what, where, when did the shift come about then, the sort of career shift from, from being in the classroom and sort of thinking about these bigger issues about what children play with to actually making the things that children play with?
1: Well, a lot happened for me. So in the you know, my years of teaching, I was I was real dedicated to that. and, and the last couple of years of teaching, I was a director of a school and, and was able to make a whole bunch of changes in the kinds of products that the kids were using in the classroom. And in that job is when I became pregnant with my daughter Stella, who now just turned 16. Um, and I tried real hard to go back to work. After she was born, but I I lasted. I think it was three months, and I knew I needed to be home with her, and I wasn't going to be comfortable working and having someone else home with her. So I kind of just, you know, put all my energy into Stella's world after that, and you know, I wasn't creating for classrooms and schools anymore, and and it it started day one with her. As soon as I was able to, I was making you know, all the toys for her room. I was making her bedding. I was just anything I knew she was going to touch. I wanted to have been the one who made it for her Um, more as a, as a way to kind of begin family heirlooms. And, you know, that was kind of the sentiment behind it. And I was already so interested in, in making sure kids played with handmade toys that it, it was sort of a natural coming together
0: Okay. And I feel like, so that first doll was made for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, the dolls now, the sort of, when you think of a Jess Brown doll now, it's so distinctive. Mm -hmm. It's got Mm -hmm. this heart shaped mouth and it's got the embroidered starburst eyes and Mm -hmm. cotton fabrics and elongated limbs. So did the first doll that you made for Stella look like the Jess Brown doll that we all sort of know of today? Or like, tell me about the evolution of how the doll has changed.
1: Well, it's kind of a funny thing. So uh, while I wasn't, there was actually a, a doll that was created so much longer ago that was the real, real first doll. And that was, I had sewn up for my sister, Who I have a I have one sister who's 13 years younger than me, so I was really involved in her upbringing, and it was right around the time that I had learned to sew, and I created a doll for her that we recently found that looks a lot like the dolls I sell now, um, with a heart shaped mouth and um, you know not star eyes, but the same type of hair, the same lanky limbs. So that one was really kind of the very first one as far as how the design looks today um, and I was probably 20 when when I made that one so that was more like 24 years ago which is kind of a crazy thing we found it recently and went wow forgot forgot about that um but Stella's first doll doesn't look like the dolls that um, that I create today hers was, Kind of a happy accident. My husband generously offered to do the laundry. He washed nine cashmere sweaters instead of dropping them at the dry cleaner, and suddenly I had this overabundance of cashmere that was shrunk and I couldn't use and didn't know what to do with it, but I just knew I didn't want to throw it away, and I kept it in a bag in my little sewing corner forever, and I ended up... um, cutting all of this cashmere apart and creating a doll that was totally made of cashmere for Stella, thinking, "What, what a fantastic crib toy. You know, like, who wouldn't want to snuggle with a completely cashmere doll? So she had rabbits and... And this one really... I mean, it was a long, lanky doll, but it was made completely of sweaters. So it was not the doll that we're used to seeing today.
0: And that one, um, was it
1: hand-sewn? Because it's pretty... Oh, completely. That one... Well, it started out completely hand-sewn. And then I realized that the stuffing was popping out because the sweater wasn't... You know, it's such a porous fabric and it wasn't working. And I went back over it with the machine and... Because I'm kind of a crazy sewer who's totally untrained, I sewed everything inside out. And so my my seams were all showing everywhere and I decided just to leave it and it would just be that that's how I made it and, and it would be fine. And it's actually this really kind of super primitive looking doll that I, I kind of love it because it's just, you know, me in the moment of trying to create this really... Wonderful, snuggly thing for my baby, and I, I look back at that, and I, I really treasure that one. It still sits in her room. Um, she she still really loves that one. So
0: yeah, and it was the genesis of what became really a significant part of your life. So yeah, so yeah. okay, so then when did the the doll that we know of today? When did that become sort of settled?
1: So that doll. So I created a doll um, for Stella, maybe when she was two, two and a half. And that's the doll that we see today. Um, She was, you know, she was a real early walker. She had a whole way she liked things to be. She was really just a methodical kid and she wanted a doll that would walk with her. And it was this you know, her, the cashmere doll had no form to it. It was really, you know, squishy and loose, and it, it wasn't something that had a, a real structure to it. So um, she, I created, you know, I, I wanted a nice, firm stuffing. I wanted it to have a muslin body. So it really emulated like the old fashioned rag dolls that we, that I had as a, you know, child. I had a couple like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, we measured the length of when her hand was holding her doll where the toes would need to touch so that the doll could actually walk along with her and that became the reason for the 22 inches um, all of that was designed for Stella and what she needed her doll to do yeah
0: okay. so, all know. right that's so that's so cool so um, so you have had some really significant um, press mentions over the years. You were on the Today Show. I just watched the clip this morning. Yeah, Um, You've been on Martha Stewart, um, in Martha Stewart Living. And uh, so was there like a turning point that you can recall, whether it was one of these press mentions or something else, like a huge order or something that sort of gave you this feeling like this is something, like this isn't more than making dolls for friends, making dolls for my own children, that this has really got to be a thing
1: well it's funny the the feel that feeling came up within the first year of me selling the dolls um before any real press mention i I was watching the way people were buying and the kinds of people who were buying this types of stores that were interested, which were kind of surprising to me. they weren't a lot of kids' stores, a lot of them were these more you know women's and home stores, and it was just this really curious bit of attention that. The dolls were getting, um, and I, I was really—I knew by the first, by the end of the first year that this wasn't just, like you said, something I was going to do as a hobby. I was really clear that there was a business here, and that if I really paid attention to it, that I had a—I had a pretty strong product. I felt strongly about it. I was seeing the reaction in shop owners, how quickly they were selling um, through my products. And so I, I, I sort of had a feeling that way. Then um, I was contacted by Martha Stewart Living, and that was really the turning point. I mean, I had had some pretty nice um, orders by then, and I, I, I think the way... Um, I don't actually even remember now how they found me, but it was, it was just sort of this... Oh, I do remember. So I... I was introduced to one of the editors at a trade show. I was doing a children's trade fair, and and one of the editors from Martha Stewart had her own children's clothing line and had just admired the dolls and bought one for her daughter, and it kind of evolved into that. But until then, it was more, you know, just this very word-of-mouth thing. When the Martha Stewart article came out, it was crazy i'd never experienced anything quite like that before it i'll never forget it the, it came out on january 3rd it was a february issue which i thought meant it came out in february but it didn't and we had just completed um my holiday production which is always a pretty heavy time of year for me because it's, you know, toys and holiday and and we have a lot of business then and usually January is the time that I rest and regroup and design the next collection and just sort of take time with my family and not that year the the article came out January 3rd we had to we had so many sales on the website that day that we ended up just marking everything sold out because there was no physical way I could keep up with the demand of what that Martha Stewart article brought to the business. It was still to this day, the most, it was just her reaches so far. It was kind of crazy.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's where I first saw you too. Um, and I remember getting it and just like
1: studying every photo and Yeah, it was the first time I really started getting fan mail and people just in a really broad way responding to the product and and, you know, wanting to know where they could buy it. And I mean, it really until then, I was heavily sold in New York and in California. And that was it. And the Martha Stewart article brought this sort of awareness in a really broad way across the country to handmade products and to. My work um and then what's interesting about a magazine is they sit in you know doctors' offices for months and months, sometimes over a year um, and people we we still get orders to this day for exactly what the dolls were wearing in the Martha Stewart article you know it's it's one of those things that people saved and it's in print, so it's always there and and it just it had a kind of an amazing reach, and that's really what launched the, the business into a different arena for sure.
0: Yeah. Gosh, thank you, Martha. You know, yeah. I mean, like that is huge, it, it's huge. It was huge for your career and for other it people really as well. Yeah. yeah. And just to value handmade like that and to feature it and to show what it is and why it's special. Um, I just
1: think that was, that's a great, a great It service. was a, an amazing gift. It was unexpected. Mm-hmm. The, what it was going to do. It yeah. was just a very crazy.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So now, um, you're a team of six people. Um, mm-hmm. you're able to produce over 250 Jess Brown dolls a month. So tell me a little bit about sort of how you, did, did you move out of your house? Did you move yeah. into a studio space? I mean, when did you just decide, okay, I need to hire an employee. Did you hire more than one at once in the beginning? I mean,
1: how did that all work? Well, initially i hired one sewing assistant who um and and it's funny now when i think back i it was really difficult for me to allow anybody to help me sew the dolls because i felt like it's it's my hands that are i'm saying you know are making them it's my it's my work it's If I didn't do every single stitch, then is it still a handmade by me product? You know, I really wrestled with that. And what ended up happening, because at at that stage, I was still sewing every single thing myself, cutting every single thing myself. Um, I was probably doing close to $50 a week by myself. Um, I was going nuts. And, you know, I, I was really clear that I knew... I didn't want my kids to feel like I was working during their day, that their time with me. So I would drop them off at school. I would sew until I had to pick them up. Then I was completely theirs until they went to bed and I would start sewing again after they'd go to bed. And sometimes, you know, I'd be up till one, two in the morning, depending on how much work I had. Um, So the first thing I did was hire a sewing assistant who could help me stuff the dolls. I felt like what are the pieces I could give up that it really doesn't matter if my hands are doing them, you know? And, and so I felt like stuffing and maybe assembling the actual body. I didn't need to be the one doing that. Um, And I realized, you know, that the outfits the dolls were wearing were pretty much the same pattern, even though I hadn't at that point designed a pattern, I was still cutting each outfit out individually, but you know, they were all pretty much the same and so I I designed a couple of patterns and just said, Okay, I need another pair of hands helping me to do this if I'm gonna grow the business. If I wanna keep it a small cottage industry, I will scale it back and make it more manageable, or I can decide to grow it and hire some help. So I brought one sewing assistant in and that was a huge help. That was fantastic. And that was still in my house. I was going to say, was
0: she commuting to your house? Right.
1: Yeah, but she was local. I mean, everybody who works with me for the most part is in Petaluma, um, California with me. Um, so that was great until I needed to hire another person to manage the, the communication, the emailing, the, what was starting to happen was it was taking me a couple of hours every day to, get back to people on orders and, you know, the, just, you know, I would, I w- offered a, an ability to kind of create your own collection for your store with me. Or if you were buying for your child, you could, you know, we could have a conversation about what you wanted the doll to look like. And, and that was really important for, for me. I didn't want to lose that piece, but I knew that at this point it was taking me hours in email and then I would still have hours of sewing. It was just, kind of a crazy mess. So then I hired um, someone to manage um, all of the emailing and that that's Kim who you've been um, chatting with. Yeah. Who's great, Um, by the way, he's great. And Kim was so amazing. She, by the time she came on board, um, I had lost my assistant sewer. Um, She had just started to, to um, design her own collection and was ready to, to do her own thing and move on from working with me. and, Kim, I was, I was pretty much falling apart and I had also started to develop really severe tendinitis. Like I, it was just a really messy time. And Kim came on board and just said, um, okay, well, do you care if, if the whole thing stops tomorrow, if you never had to sew another doll again, would it bother you? Would you be upset? And I said, no, I, I, I need to make a change. I need something to happen. And and so we sat together and she said, okay, if you're willing to risk it, then this is what I think we should do. And we sat together and and figured out that we needed a, a team of people to help me, that there's no way I could physically keep up with what was happening and, you know, mother my children and be a wife and also work all day and do all the things that, you know, we all do. So, At that point, I let go a little bit of some of the control and brought in um, a couple of other sewers. We started to, um, people mostly sewed from their home studios, and it was all the basic pieces of the doll. It was the body, it was the clothing, that sort of thing. And then everything would come back to me for every, all of the handwork detail. Um, That was before we went and got a, a big studio. Okay,
0: so. so people were take they were doing doing kind of piece work at their houses and then exactly. driving it by and picking up more materials, taking them home, sewing, yeah. bringing them back. Um, and it was
1: pretty cool too. It was um, we never really had to look for people. I mean, you know, I'd be sitting on soccer fields with baskets of dolls, you know, watching soccer games and embroidering hair and sewing faces, and and I just have you know. Women come up to me and say, "What are you? You know, what are you doing? What is that?" And or, "Oh my God, I saw you in Martha Stewart." No. You know, that sort of thing. And do you, if you ever need help, I would love to sew with you. And and every single person who still works for me today came to me that way. And so it's really a team of moms, and it's you know, it's created a livelihood for just women in my community who can't really have that you know very set schedule and need to be able to work from home or in the studio or you know at night if they feel like it and and it's yeah it's been it's we have this amazing team that all was sort of organically coming together
0: and then when so you moved out though eventually and got yeah separate (laughs) studio space so tell me about the studio space. How far is it from your house? Is it kind of in an industrial area, or yeah, are there other artist studios near there? What is it like there?
1: So my studio is only around four blocks from my house. We live in the um, in the historic downtown district of Petaluma, um, and it's it's a really quaint, really sweet little town. Um, we, my studio is in a building called the mill and it was the original grain mill in Petaluma. So the, the building itself is a little on the industrial side, but it's just in the heart of the downtown area. Um, there's all sorts of things in it. There's a, you know, a restaurant, a bunch of hair salons. There's actually the publishers for two of my books, the Kiki and Coco and Lulu and Pip are, have an office up there and it's where I got to know that building, I would go to meetings with them and thought this would be a cool place if we could ever find a room big enough. And and one came up. So we've been, um, well, it's only been a year and a half that we've had this studio. Up until then, we'd been working out of my sun porch and in everyone's home studios. Um, But now we have a really fantastic big room. And And
0: has that shifted your mindset at all? Because now (laughs) you literally go to work and then you work and then you leave work and come home at least yeah. supposedly yeah. Um, at the end of the day. And so all your things are there and I'm, I'm assuming, you know, your machines are there, your materials are there. Right. Um, and so has that changed? I mean, your children are a little bit older now. Um, I think, I don't know, for me at least having young children and working, you know, I work out of a corner of our bedroom, mm-hmm. working here at home is really convenient, but I can see a time when moving out would be best.
1: Yeah, it it was a huge game changer for me. It my my problem is always my um that I don't know when to stop, you know, I know to stop when my children are here and, and I, I'm really present for them, but I am the person that will stay up till three in the morning and then, you know, we're getting emails from Europe or from Asia and I, they're up and I'm up and I figure why not, you know, and it, it was becoming a real problem. I had a lot of trouble with setting really clear boundaries for myself because I, I, I knew the workload wasn't getting any lighter and so, moving into the studio really created a definition for me between work and home, which I just in my personality I needed. Um, I love that I have a studio with you know we don't have stuffing boxes in my house anymore. You know we you know we get pallets delivered of of up to sixty boxes of stuffing in a time that I was trying to squirrel away in my house and, you know, just living like that was really difficult for my family. So, um, I love that the studio holds everything needed for production. At this point, we, we produce almost $400 a week, um, or a month rather, I'm sorry. And, uh, and it's a lot, you need a lot of, of raw material on hand to be able to do that kind of work. So, um, it's, it created a nice boundary for me. And what I have at home now is I kept my sun porch as my studio. It's where it's more of a creative studio for me. So, um, I have my original sewing machine there. I have my really, really special collections of fabric there that I'll bring down to the studio if I'm working on it, something that I need that for, but it's where, um, I do my sketching. It's where I, if I'm working on quilts, I, the quilts are really a personal experience for me, and I don't like doing that in the studio if I don't have to. So, um, you know, the studio is definitely more, more of a true working studio. There's We now have um, four sewers who are not always there at the same time but really need to spread out when they are there. So it's not a real creative space that way for me because it's such a working studio for everybody else. So my home studio is the place where I go to get inspiration and, you know, design that kind of thing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, um, about pricing. So your dolls retail now for what, how much, what's the range?
1: The range is, um, well, so the smaller doll we do that is sold in land of Nod, um, and we're going to be doing um, – we're doing a holiday collection for anthropology right now. They'll have a smaller size doll. Um, those range from, I think, around 120 to $150. Um, and then the, the regular basic 22-inch, the one that was designed for Stella, that original doll, is uh, – the base price is 198 on that. And the range is up to – I think it's – Two forty-eight. If you want to do a completely customized doll, where people will send me heirloom fabric from their family um, collections, and and I create a really personal doll with them, and I think that that runs about two forty-eight. So,
0: okay. So, what do you think the price communicates to consumers and also to shop owners? I mean, when I think about you know, I have three daughters, so I think about dolls quite a bit, and. Um, you know, like, uh, an American girl doll is, mm-hmm. you know, about a hundred dollars to buy an American girl doll. So, so that's not the same at all as a Jess Brown doll. Okay. Right. So, um, so when we think about, you know, pricing and it's got this price tag on it, what, what does that say? Like what message is it conveying?
1: Yeah, that, you know, it's funny price, um, was the most challenging piece of this whole business for me, especially coming from a teaching background and, I mean, I believe that every child should have access to, you know, a comfort doll. I, it's, it was a real big challenge for me to, to figure out how to price. And, and actually, originally, the dolls retailed for the first two years, I think it was, at $90. The, the retail price was that. But what was happening was um, I, it, it was impossible to create a doll at that price, like it it became the amount of dolls I was sewing it, it was becoming this really um, it wasn't that I was losing money, it wasn't anything like that. it was just the amount of hours it was taking me to create each doll and, and and create them really thoughtfully. it wasn't adding up and and actually when I brought Kim on one of that that was one of the first conversations we had as well I just I was really. I knew that I had created this product that was taking off, and I knew that I wanted to keep creating it the way I was creating it. And I didn't want to ship them overseas. I had gotten a couple of price quotes from a factory in India, one in Korea, and I felt that, you know, instantly, sure great. You can create a doll for me for $2. And then that becomes a really different product I'm selling. And I don't think I want to be selling that product. I, that my interest was keeping this very personal, personal product alive and not, you know, backing down on the integrity I was bringing to what I was making. So we decided at that moment, um, and it was part of that same original conversation where we said, you know, Kim asked, would it matter if you never, so you know, did another doll again? And I said, not at all. And, and so right there, we decided we were going to double the prices. And this was mostly, you know, the bulk of our business is wholesale. Um, you know, we felt we need to double the prices and either we'll be creating half as many dolls and actually begin to make a living off of this or... Um, no one will buy them again and that will be that. And it was fun while it lasted and, and let that be what happened. But at, at the price I was doing it, I was priced so low that it just wasn't, it wasn't making any sense. And I was working way too much. Um, what ended up happening was we doubled the prices and it was what really launched the dolls into this whole other arena. It, we had our best year of sales ever, um, we didn't lose any stores. People seemed to want and crave them more that, than you know because they were more expensive. It was sort of a it was a really bizarre turn of events. It was kind of strange um, to watch. But what I realized was that was the proper price point, and I was so I was priced so low that it was impossible to produce them at the price I was offering them at. So. Once in the final, you know, right price point, the business did better. It loosened up a little bit of cash flow for me. So I was able to bring in some help. Um, We're still, you know, it's not a highly profitable business. I'm still so committed to having everything created domestically and, you know, in my studio. So it sounds like a high price point. But in the end, when it's a completely handmade product to this level, it's um it's kind of what it has to be so
0: right so um let's talk about um toy safety standards i hope i can ask about that yeah. i know um you know this is a product it's a doll so even if you know it's sort of entered into more of a lifestyle market or a women's market to a degree it could be understood by the consumer as a product intended for children. Totally. Um, And it's, you know, it's got buttons on it um, and, you know, it is hand-stitched. So have you had to wrestle with toy safety standards at all what has that been like? we
1: have well we um what's what's great is we haven't had to wrestle with any of them but we have had to do safety testing um absolutely um a couple of years ago and i i'm not going to remember what it's called now and you you probably know better than i but there was that really big movement of the the toy safety um the, the handmade thing that happened. Yes, I do like, know what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: It was like the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Yeah. Had,
1: yeah. Right. And so what happened then, and now I think I'm going back maybe five years ago is when that was happening. Um it was just a really it was a great intention, but it was a really poorly written yeah. um, thing. And what it did for handmade was it it lumped you in with every other you know it was when all the the lead paint was being found on the toys from china and it really did lump you in so what they were requiring and still are requiring is that every single piece of your product has to be safety tested so that means your i mean down to your embroidery floss to see if there's lead in the dye that was um put in the embroidery floss it, it's Anything. It's any piece of your product. It made it so that if you were using reclaimed fabrics or vintage fabrics, every single fabric individually would have to go through testing process. Um, we found. I, I think it's there. A lot of people appealed it. It. It was. You know. People have tried to have it rewritten. All I know is during that time, we began the testing process, which was incredibly expensive because of how many components go into the doll, and it was every single component had to be tested separately. Um, we did find that if you were handmade but using natural products, that you were exempt from a lot of that. So if it was a 100% cotton or wood or our buttons or shell buttons, we were exempt from a lot of that um, which was great, um, the product as a whole. We keep, you know, as a as a pretty naturally based, you know, and created product. Even the fiber inside, it was the reason for for finding sustainable fiber, which we use corn fiber in the dolls. So all of that came about because of safe, safety testing. Um, that being said, we've had to do. Safety testing—we've had to. We've had the dolls went through a burn test to see how flammable they were. Um, which we assured the testing agency that they will absolutely be flammable. They're completely made of, you know, cotton muslin and. Horn fiber and, you know, everything, but they still, they, they have to test a burn rate. Um, with the button shoulders, I, we do put a disclaimer saying the dolls are not suitable for children under three because of the buttons. It's the only small piece that goes on the dolls, so um, we have the disclaimer for that. Safety testing, um, it's tricky. It's it's really, it's challenging for the handmade um, products for sure. And it's challenging to be a handmade toy product.
0: So, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear how it's driven some of the decisions about materials used. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, that is, that's pretty interesting. So, um, all right. So your dolls play a role in, um, in some children's books, which you mentioned, (laughs) visiting the publisher in the same building where your studio is located. Um, so how did the collaboration come about where your doll gets to be the
1: doll in these two books? Well, that's kind of a, I love this story. It's such a good one. Um, so the photographer actually um, is, she, she lives a couple of blocks away from me and, and used to frequent my store. I, I used to own a store called Maud with um, a friend of mine. And she would come and shop at Maud, and she was leaving for Paris with her daughter, um, whose name is Kiki, and she said, um, she popped in, I mean, I think they were leaving, they had two days, you know, before they were leaving, and she said, you know, I'd really love to get a doll for Kiki to bring on this trip, and I said, no problem, and she kind of said, let's have it be kind of lacy and feel really Parisian, and I said, great, and I think I dropped it off on her doorstep just a couple of hours before she was leaving um, for her trip, and that was that. Um, a couple of months later, she so she's a commercial photographer, and she often does a calendar um, for her clients every year of just you know one theme of photographs. And she did this Kiki and Coco in Paris calendar um, and a little slideshow to go with it, and it was i mean it went viral it was just this crazy it was only supposed to go to her clients and friends and and somehow the the little video which we i think still have on our website um it just went nuts and and then um about a year after that we had the publisher of the of what are now the books contacted her they had just seen it online having no idea that the two um, Stephanie, the photographer, and I both lived in Petaluma. The publishers also live in Petaluma, and they had no idea, so they contacted her and, assuming we both lived in New York, asked if we could fly out to California to meet with them and you know this whole thing um, and it it ended up where um, where we all live within blocks from each other. And it was kind of a crazy thing. And they asked if they could do the Kiki and Coco book, and we were both on board with it. And it was sort of a kismet situation. It all was, you know, perfectly put together. And, you know, it was really, really great experience.
0: Yeah. And it fits right in with your former life as a young, you know, early childhood teacher too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, tell me a little bit about Maud. So when you
1: know, do you feel like owning a store? What kinds of things did you sell at, at the store? So Maud, um, Maud was just, it, I mean, it's still there. Stacy, my my friend um, who I owned it with still has it. Um, Maud came about because we were both um, moms at home. We met in a Waldorf school and we just really had similar taste and decided to do this as a creative outlet. And she was, um, she sewed, Kids' clothes, and I was um, at this point starting to make the dolls. Um, So it came about because of that. We were buying really sophisticated clothes for children. We were kind of, at least, you know, in in our neck of the woods, it was pretty unheard of to be selling gray or black baby clothes. It was, you know, we were just really interested in this back to basics, more sophisticated look for, for young children. And, and we were selling, um, you know, just this very high price point, very sophisticated, lots of things imported from Europe, um, you know, store for, for children and babies. Um, it was in an upstairs of a building. It was, in this teeny 10 by 10 room, we didn't have a sign. People just kind of knew to come up. And if we were there, we were open. And if we weren't there, we were, I mean, it was just this sort of funny little store, but, um, but that's kind of the aesthetic of the store and watching people shop. helped me understand the type of brand I wanted to have. I was not really looking for, can I sell a ton of these? I was I was more interested in, can I sell five of these to people who really get it and really understand what I'm doing? Um, and, and I think having Maud really shaped my idea of who my customer was.:
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. I feel like that was, you know a, such a, what a valuable thing to have experience, sort of from the shop owner. And also, and and I'm guessing when you now you know play, get, get these wholesale orders, you sort of have an understanding of what it
1: looks like from these shop owners. And- yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm really um, I I understand retail from from a really passionate place. I, I understand how I used to you know run my store and and the kinds of things I wanted to sell. I wanted to you know Stacy and I had a deep commitment to only selling products that we knew we would buy ourselves. And, you know, it wasn't about, you know, the thrill of the sale or anything like that. For us, it was really about, you know, providing products that people seem to crave a little bit. You know, they just wanted something a little bit different, a little bit more sophisticated for their kids. Um, Not like dour or too serious, but just, just something that was a little elevated from what we were looking at, you know, day to day. And, um, and also knowing who the designers were, it was a deep commitment we had to know each designer and get to know each designer. It's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of my collaborations come from people, you know, that we sold at mod. Um, we really wanted to know the story behind each product. We wanted to know where they were being made, who these, you know, who were the sewers, who were the designers. And, um, yeah, it really, it was invaluable to me in, in forming this brand for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let's briefly talk about some of your collaborations with, um, you know, fabric designers. Um, so what, tell me about one or two of them that, you know, really stand out to you as being the most kind of fun and cool.
1: Yeah. Um, well it's, I mean, basically the collaborations for me are, are people that I feel is some sort of connection to things that I love, you know, that, that I appreciate. Um, and yeah, they, they're, an, it's an interesting process how we collaborate. Um, the first two were the woven play brand, um, which she does these amazing costumes. She has, um, Catherine Edmonds is the owner and designer behind Woven Play, and we sold her work at Mod. She has perfectly figured out how to make something look as though you've just found a trunk in an attic and you're pulling out costumes from the 20s and 30s um, for children. I mean, it's she's remarkable. She's a master at dyeing, and her fabric design is just just off the mark. I mean, she's just so brilliant. That collaboration came about because someone was asking me to create a ballerina doll for their child. And I was really struggling and I kept pulling up the woven play site and looking at the ballerina costumes we had in our shop and thinking, you know, how does she do it? Like it just, I couldn't get it right. Everything I was creating felt really cheesy and really too much, you know, tool and too, I don't know. It just wasn't working. And I called Catherine and just said, "Would you ever consider making your ballerina costume in doll size, and and we could sell a woven play doll?" And she was so excited about it. And it was just, you know, it was it was the first collaboration I did. It was so perfect. It was the best fit for the doll. And she's a master with pattern making too, and was really able to figure out how to create this perfect costume that was just scaled down for, for the doll. So that was the first kind of really exciting one because it was just really great. Um, everyone since then and, you know, people that are sort of waiting in the wings are all designers that I'm really excited about what they do. And it's something that I wouldn't try to do myself. It's gotta be something that's out of my genre, you know, a little bit and, and that will, enhance my product as well. So, you know, I mean, I think that the other biggest collaboration would be, um, the Bottega Veneta job that I did, which was, I mean, definitely goes up there and one of the highlights of my life moments. So and tell us a little
0: bit, that's the one where you made, um, life-sized versions of your
1: dolls for fashion week. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, I, I received an email. It was, um, it was actually, um, right around the time that the Martha article was coming out, um, or it had been, we had just done the interview for it. So it was sort of this crazy whirlwind time. Um, I received an email from the visual director of Bottega Veneta whose child had a small collection of my dolls. And she had this idea that she wanted um, life-size dolls in all of the windows for Fashion Week 2012 um, in all of the flagship stores. And I really thought it was some sort of joke. Like, I couldn't... It was so over-the-top, anything I could have imagined. It was so nuts. And, you know, I'm having phone meetings in my kitchen wearing my pajamas with my son practicing karate with you know the the visual directors of this massive massive brand i mean it was just it was crazy 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 but in the end um it was this really amazing collaboration where they we worked together to come up with the design in the end they really wanted it to be my design and, and the dolls um, we created 14 5 10 um, enormous i mean i'm i'm five feet tall, so it was a it was a just <laughs> situation in my house, and we did it all from my house, which was also crazy. We had folding tables that went completely across my entire house to to hold all um fourteen i mean we almost needed a table for each doll because they were so big and um it was it was absolutely crazy
0: did you get to see them like one did you go and install it
1: yeah i installed the ones <coughs> excuse me in um beverly hills and in in uh, manhattan on 5th avenue nice wow it, that's it, a moment yeah it was completely i mean it was so we we actually drove um the ones to la to beverly hills down because you know shipping them was such a challenge yeah so we we just had Kim's Land Cruiser packed to the ceiling with these dolls. I mean, it was so crazy. It was just we kept saying, oh, my God, if we get pulled over, <laughs> this is just because they're all I had them all wrapped in garbage bags because I kept thinking, you know, we have to keep them really, really clean. clean and I just right. yeah. And I just thought, oh, my God, we look like we are. It looks bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really bad. Corpses. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it was thrilling. It was, it was, I will never forget it. It was definitely one of my highlights of my life.
0: Yeah. Okay. Congratulations on that. That is amazing. Um, I love the photos and I'll make sure I post one in the post. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. So, okay. So now this takes us sort of up to now. You've written a book, mm-hmm. um, which I have. It's called The Making of a Ragdoll. Tell me the story of
1: how this book came to be. So that's, that's kind of an interesting story too. Um, we, I, well, what's funny is the editor, our editor from Chronicle reached out to me because she had seen the Martha Stewart article. Yeah. And, and it was maybe a year old at that point. I mean, it. She, it was really old, and she said she. I think she said she saw it in her mom's house. It was just in an old stack of magazines, and um, so they, you know, she approached me. She wanted to do a how-to book, which was a real stretch for me. Um, I wasn't comfortable, you know, giving away all of. You know, it didn't make sense to me to do a how-to book on something that I'm I've created into a business. I mean, it was really. a a stretch for me to think of how to do that. And we worked together on the concept for a little while and they, uh, Chronicle agreed to allow me to more tell the story of where the rag dolls came from. And I was willing to create a doll different from the doll that I sell, um, for this book, a, a pattern and a set of patterns that, were created specifically from the book, um, a doll from my studio, but not the doll that I'm, you know, making a living off of. um, so
0: so. this doll is, um, the book doll is Mm -hmm. shorter. She is. And her arms are not
1: button jointed on. They are of a piece with the body. Exactly. And there's a, um, the, the doll pattern for the book is very different from the doll that I make. It's, um, it's, there's a seam up the back. It's actually more reminiscent of a, of a real traditional rag doll. It's the way my, my, my rag doll as a child was sewn, um, really similarly to it. And, um, yeah, my challenge was to make it, to make it different, but still obviously a doll from my studio. So it was, it was tricky. Um, is it
0: weird now to see other people? I mean, there's been people who have imitated, you know, your doll is mm-hmm. gotten, it's all over the place. People have, you know, sort of imitated it or riffed on it for years, yeah. but now they actually have a pattern drawn by, condoned by you and are making them. Is it weird to go on Instagram
1: and see Jess Brown dolls <laughs> made by other people? It is. Um, it's it, it's challenging. It, it. I knew it was going to be hard. It is hard. Um, I think, you know, part of the reason for doing this book was to kind of combat a little bit of how many imitations we have. I mean, it's incredibly flattering that people, the pattern speaks to so many people and people love the look of it. It's one thing to, you know, create something for your child you know, emulating someone's work. It's an entirely different thing to start a business around it and become, you know, almost a competitor of sorts using a pattern I created. Um, That's where, for me, it's difficult. So when I was talking to Chronicle about doing the book, one of my reasons for wanting to was to kind of tell people the story of the brand and how it came about and to, you know, it. sure, I mean, anybody can look at anything and try to copy it. That's not, that's not difficult if you know how to sew. I mean, it happens all the time and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I wanted to create a way for people to, you know, work visually with something that I've created that I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with putting out this book and saying, here's a pattern that, Is my how to pattern. If you'd like to create a doll, I would love to, you know, for you to work with this set of patterns. You know, it's, I think most of the people um, that I see posting things are making things for their own kids, and I think that's fantastic. I love that somehow I can play, you know, a little teeny role in inspiring people to um, make handmade for their children. I mean, that's really at the end of the day what's important to me. It, it does become different when someone creates a business out of it. And we've had, we've had definitely our share of knockoffs and, um, we've even had people use my name to drive traffic to their, you know, stores, um, to, to sell their products, which that, that's a whole different story. Sure. yeah. Yeah.
0: This is, I mean, this is what happens, you know? Yeah. For sure. This is part of it. And this is part of operating online. But even, Mm -hmm. even before, even before the internet, people would just do it and you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know about it, but they would be doing it anyway. It's just been, I think it's, it's been part of, uh,
1: having a creative business forever. Um, I think so too. I also, I think that, I think that, you know handmade also. I mean, there's, you know, you're inspired by things that you see and you touch and you want to try to create them because there's some, there's sort of an instinct when you look at something and you're, you are drawn to it and fascinated by it that you want to see if you can do it. And I don't see anything wrong with that. And I think that, um, that's part of being creative is first you learn to do something from a pattern and then you develop your own you know, style around it. Um, I think that it's again, it's just very different when when people you know then try to create a business off something that they have not created on their own.
0: Right. And the truth is, if you're going to start um, a business, you need to have your own patterns. I mean, that's gotta be part of your business. It's not, it's sort of foolish to start a business without your own patterns. You know, that it it really, those two things need to come hand in hand. I think, I mean, I think so
1: too. I mean, we also have, I mean, we have the most amazing fan base too. And often when, by the time I've seen something, well, most of the things I see come through our fans sending me, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen this? My website designer, um, Googles the brand name a, a couple times a month because I can't. It, it's really hard for me to go searching for that kind of stuff. And we've had to send, you know, um, some cease and desist letters, which is never a pleasant thing. But at the end of the day, it's, it's one of those, you know, the amount of work and energy and sleepless nights that I've put into creating a business off of a pattern that took me a a quite a while to design. I'm really protective over it. And it's really why I decided writing this book was so important. You know, I, I did want people to know the story behind the product and, and I wanted people to feel comfortable, you know, exploring their creativity. I mean, I, I think that is wonderful. And so here's a way I can give that to people that I'm comfortable with instead of, you know, seeing all the knockoffs the way we have this, this is great. And I actually, as you know, I, I knew it was going to be hard, but I was excited when people started sending and Instagramming the photographs of the dolls they were creating, because it's, it's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of great to see that people are, you know, they're not trying to sell them. They're making them because they really are drawn to it and they want to, they wanted to Sort of play with the idea of it, and I—it's been really flattering.
0: Was there ever a moment when you were writing the book or considering writing the book when you wondered or thought maybe you should self-publish the pattern and the doll clothes patterns yourself and um, and do it that way? I mean, I think if you had put the pattern as a you know PDF on your site. It would have been a smash hit. I mean, I think people would have gone nuts like, oh my gosh, Jess Brown. And even if it was this altered pattern, it wasn't uh, the Jess Brown doll pattern, but it was a Jess Brown Brown doll pattern created specifically for a DIY uh, community. But if you had done that and published it yourself, I mean, I think people would have have said, oh my gosh, she's released the pattern for us uh, and bought it directly from you. So why work with Chronicle versus going
1: on your own? You know, honestly, I I didn't think of what you just described um, at first at all, and I it took some real convincing on Chronicles' part to um, for me to get comfortable with the idea in the first place. So it wasn't something that I had ever intended on doing. It was a real. I wrestled with the idea for quite a while, and I think it would have almost been harder for me to do it direct. Um, I also knew that the reason the Chronicle experience was, was what I wanted um, to go with was because they were willing to allow me to really tell the story and to have it very visually based. And so there were things about that that were really appealing to me. I wasn't interested in just um, selling a bunch of, or having a, a downloadable pattern for people to kind of start going for it. It was more that, you know, the patterns were sort of secondary to me. I wanted to create a book that people just were visually interested in and, you know, include a story that was, I felt important about the handmade movement. So
0: absolutely. And it has that coffee table book feel to it. Like it has that sort of beautiful editorial feel to it. That isn't just a straight up pattern book.
1: Yeah, that, that was, um, the design of that book became, you know, like I said, the patterns in the end were very secondary to me. It, it, the design and look of that book, I wanted people to want to buy this book, even if they never picked up Needle and Thread. I, I felt like this book was about the story of the brand. It was not about me releasing um, DIY um, patterns. So,
0: Well, Jess Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Welsh and podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Yeah, thanks for
0: having me. Thank you so much. You can find Jess's work online at jessbrowndesign.com. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.